ladies and gentlemen, we're going to take you all the way down in New Orleans this time. Competition is It's Wednesday, and that means it is time for the Dome Patrol here on Hard to Paint with David Grubb. And joining me, as he does each and every Wednesday, Ross Jackson. Ross, how are you doing today? Doing very well, man. Doing very well. It's been a busy day for both of us, so uh, glad we're able to connect and provide some levity in our, uh, in our Wednesday today. Have a little fun. Yes. So let's start with, the, with something that's very interesting. So Sean Payton has been openly... Mm-hmm. openly critical of the NFL mm-hmm. in how they're handling uh, isolation of players. You know, he, he basically said he, he, he can guarantee that there's going to be an interruption in the season. He has, he, he says, look at what the NBA is doing. Look at what the NHL is doing. It's all great. I love that. Bubbles are fantastic. No bubbles proposed by the NFL, but he's trying to create his own in downtown mm-hmm. New Orleans at the Lowe's hotel. How successful do you think Coach P will be at uh, creating this bubble? I think he's going to be pretty successful in creating their own bubble, right? The, the one that he's creating for the team. And I think the team is going to buy into it. You know, we, we've talked about it here on the show before, but this is a team that is going to rally around whatever this coach has to say because, look, coach had it. Coach dealt with it, came back from it, you know what I'm saying? And so I think that, like, that type of leadership – and people are going to fall into it and just kind of understand like, yeah, this is what's best, you know, for, um, for what's, what it's going to be, what's best for us. You know, even players like uh, Thomas Morstead, who, you know, he's got kids at home and he said, you know, I'm doing the bubble as much as I can and everything. And so players are buying into it already. And I think it can be pretty successful. I mean, we've already seen some level of success from this organization so far as one of the organizations that has no uh, positive, has had no positive COVID test up to this point and up to this point, only two opt-outs as well. So obviously the players are in a position to where they feel like the organization is putting them in a very safe position to the point to where they're not, you know, choosing to opt out. There's still a day left for that. They've got until 4 PM Eastern time on Thursday to make that choice. But as of right now, uh, everything seems to prove, let me not say everything seems to prove everything seems to show or lean itself toward the idea that it, it, it was essentially what he's trying to do is pretty successful thus far. How much credibility do you think he got from the way he handled this from jump to not, you know, to saying we're going to take this and be as, as cautious about it as possible. He could have been the guy who said, okay, I got through it and let's get to work. Right. But he has shown openly and publicly that he stands with his players and their families and says, that's number one deal with that. Knowing the veterans on this roster, you know, that had, Already they respect it. But say in right. a time like this, where there's the are these serious questions about, you know, where players are hashtagging, we want to play, how mm-hmm. much do you think this helps Sean Payton in communicating the urgency of being in this um, uh, bubble that he's creating? Yeah, I think that's a great point. And I think that that's, that that's a big part of the factor of the trust that this team has in him is that from the very, from the, like you said, from the jump, from the very beginning, he canceled the offseason. He said, nobody's coming in until we're, you know, in training camp. 
and everything. And that turned out to be the right choice because across the NFL, offseason ended up getting canceled up until training camp anyway. <laughs> and so he got ahead of it, you know, and he was basically saying that, look, even if they give us the option for a man, you know, not a mandatory, but a voluntary mini camp or anything like that, we're not doing it. And he has been very adamant about the players. Even today in his comments, you know, he mentioned that a lot of people have things at stake, especially the players. He continues to go back to the players each and every time at a time to where a lot of these players felt like they were getting left behind in terms of the decision-making process, the protocols, and that they were essentially just being used as pieces on a chalkboard. I'm sorry, pieces on a chessboard in a way. And uh, Sean Payton has done a very good job at establishing and maintaining the humanity of these players during a time to where, yes, they want to play, but they want to do so safely. So he's figuring out, and Gail Benson, who's taking on the expense of renting out an entire hotel downtown to make sure that they have this sort of micro bubble or sequester, as they call it, they're doing everything that they need to do thus far, at least so far of what, they, what they've thought of. And I expect you'll see more unique measures coming from the Saints. I mean, Kat Terrell did a fantastic piece over at The Athletic on the self-cleaning detergents that they're using so that once they use something, whatever the microbial whatever's are i'm not a scientist i'm a football guy but they reclean the the damn laundry like <laughs> they're, they're already using so much to make sure that they're keeping uh their players safe because without the players there's no product there's no product to to put out on the field in the first place which is why the nfl should have been more invested in what the players needed and what the players wanted in this in the first place but there's no question about that with sean payton and also look at what else they went through this offseason I mean, you have the, uh, the Archdiocese uh, scandal that's been on and off all throughout this. You have the, the, the Drew Brees comments that's been going on on and off all throughout this. Coach Payton has been at the forefront. We don't really know too much about the, the, the sexual abuse scandal with the church and the PR getting involved in that. That's not really a player and coach thing. Right. That's more executive level thing. But I imagine that there were questions, and I have no question at all that Sean Payton was the one talking to these guys during that, just like he was the guy that was up in front during the, during the Drew Brees, you know, when they had their meeting that was, had already been scheduled and everything, all the Drew Brees comments. And so the, the players trust this coach and this coach shows over and over again, coach Payton does that he deserves to be trusted. Let's look at it from this angle then. So we still have the, the other two opt out, the two players who have opt out. We talked about the mm-hmm. deadline. Are we expecting anyone else to opt out at this point? And then Let's look at it also, what's happened in Major League Baseball, where mm-hmm. you all have players during the season, now that it's started, saying, nope, I can't do this, because they're looking around and they're seeing these outbreaks. And then you look at what, what's going on in college football, where you have conference commissioners saying to players, essentially, hey, there's going to be an outbreak at some point. How do you deal with that potential of – these additional opt-outs? Because I think that that is going to become a question at some point that this deadline is not going – we already thought it was a hard deadline once. Right. It's not going to be – I don't think this is going to be a hard deadline a second time. No, you're absolutely right. And, in fact, they've already mentioned that you know players should have the option to opt out uh, specific health purposes, specific health reasons, and I imagine some of that would be an outbreak within your own team where something like that happens and then it makes you it puts you in a place where you're like ah look i'm not comfortable doing this anymore that you should have that option opt out you should you absolutely should have that option at any point there's there should be no contractual obligation during a global pandemic to run in and say no you have to play the game of football you have to tackle each other roll around on each other sweat on each other spit on each other you have to do this no there's there's no reality to that there's no reality to that at all because there's no reality to that for any other job as well you know, no. I mean, I, I like, don't get me wrong. 
I think that when it comes to essential workers and everything, there's obviously a need for those people. But if any of those people say, I'm not comfortable doing this, they have every right without punishment to step away from, from what they're doing. Now, what the employer does and things like that, much like in the NFL, what the employer does is up to them. But you know, you can't, you, you shouldn't be held liable or responsible or anything like that for making an educated and responsible decision if you feel like that's the right one to make. And I think that the NFL eventually, if they haven't already, uh, they should finalize that pretty soon. If that wasn't a part of the side letter that was just signed on Monday, Monday or Tuesday, uh, if that wasn't a part of the side letter, I imagine it'll be another side letter to the CBA in terms of, you know, what the season is. But it, yeah, look, it, <sighs> you have to give people that option because when you look at what the NFL, you know, what the NFL is, the, the type of play that it is, is a close contact sport and everything. And this is another thing that Sean Payton acknowledged. He said today that, look, there's probably going to be, you know, you're playing the game of football. There's going to be outbreaks. He didn't even say probably. He said, there's going to be out. People are going to test positive. It's tackle football. You know, these types of things are going to happen. And that's why they have this option in terms of the opt out for the players. And they should also make sure that they have some type of a structure that allows players, whether it be because of high risk or health purposes or family health purposes, that continues to allow them to opt out during the regular season based upon what they learn. Because we're going to learn new information throughout all of this. Yeah. And that's what makes it really difficult because there's fears to stop at your play at some point. Mm-hmm. And the interruption, let's say it's two weeks. During right. that time, I could, yeah, that's new information to me as a player. Mm-hmm. And then as others opt out, you also have to start thinking about the safety of playing the game with a whole bunch of guys who may not be NFL starters. Right. You know what I mean? So I'd be right. starting to, th- you know, if I were a quarterback and all of a sudden my offensive line is out with COVID, I might think about, hey, you might sitting make some this decisions. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's not the same thing. You know, we watched the, the Marlins today go out there with, 18 brand new players they had a olympic speed skater uh on their roster they had two dudes named john smith who i'm convinced they just created in a lab and forgot to rename (laughs) (laughs) you know and and they won and they won their game four to zero but it's a very different style of, of play when it's not just about winning the game it's also about you know keeping yourself safe depending upon who's in front of you and what everybody's job is and if somebody doesn't do their job are you the quarterback that's getting a blindside hit you know, full force because your left tackle, right tackle, depending on if you're left or right-handed quarterback, you know, is some Olympic sprinter instead of an offensive lineman, you know what I'm saying? And so I think that that's a, or, or even just somebody that's down further on the depth chart or on their, right. on the practice squad, that's not a starter, right? Even if they're not a nobody per se, still, if they're not somebody that has that experience, and doesn't have the communication, it's a dangerous thing. So, I mean, I think all that's going to play, all that's going to play factors. And the other thing too, and I keep stressing this anytime that I talk about COVID because it, it because there's truth to it, is that this all started in in March, mm-hmm. um, in terms of when when the shutdowns and everything began. We know that this has existed for for beyond that. But with every passing day, we're still learning more about the long term effects of this illness, and we might learn something in two weeks that times out with somebody having had it for a year or something like that, or, you know, nine months or whatever that tells us something new about this virus. And so that might inform the way that players feel about risking the idea uh, of catching it, you know, because what am I going to look like nine months from now? We've heard things already about heart issues. We've heard stuff about people already having the, it was a professional baseball player dealing with heart issues after COVID. We've had, you know, breathing issues. We've had some people, Rudy Gobert took forever. I don't even know if he has his sense of smell and taste back completely. One of the uh, players in WNBA is still talking about that, that she has mm-hmm. no sense of taste or smell. And yep. so there's people you know, are, so there's, are catching it a second time. 
Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's the other part of it too, is that people are catching it again and stuff. And so it's, you know, it's one of those things where all of that informs and all of those play as, as a part in this decision as a variable for what could potentially happen with these players and why they might make a decision to opt out later on. Um, one of the big moves that I think that is going to have some long-term ramifications for the saints is them promoting Terry Fontenot. Mm-hmm. I thought that was an incredibly important move um, to give him that title uh, vice president level of uh, pro personnel. Um, I think this, again, preparing for that post breeze era and having continuity in the front office of vision and whether somebody does tr- may come back and try to get a Jeff Ireland as a right. guy goes back and, and, and be a, uh, a GM or, you know, in that type yep. of role, leading a franchise, you, you keep a guy close enough to you who you feel can make good decisions. Yeah. I love this move. I saw some people that were a little bit confused about it and everything like that, and maybe took it as a, a point of concern that they were adding more, you know, uh, responsibility in the front office and splitting up the GM duties and things like that. But it makes sense. There's a lot of teams that have that don't even go and split by college scouting and pro scouting personnel that they just have a player personnel. And then there's directors that branch on from them that focus college and pro. But the way that the, the saints have done it is that they've just elevated those those same people with that function as the leaders within the, their specific departments, I'll say, and then also are giving them this assistant GM uh, responsibility because Terry Fontenot is, is, yes, he has always sort of operated as the, 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 the pro scouting portion of this and pro personnel, but he's worked a little bit over into the draft world as well. And I imagine Jeff Ireland has done the same thing. These are two guys, the Jeff Ireland and Terry Fontenot that know exactly what types of players Sean Payton wants on his team first of all, and not just on the field, but also in the locker room, the types of guys that he likes, the personality, the prototypes, all that stuff. These are guys that know each other's job very well because they work so closely with one another. And and now they're going to work even more closely, essentially, you know, standing next to or on either side of Mickey Loomis, depending upon however you want to depict it. Mm -hmm. And come on, like Terry Fontenot's, you know, he's a, a, local guy, right? Lake Charles guy. Uh, He's been with the team for 16 years and everything. And he's been huge and instrumental in terms of, uh, in terms of spearheading some of these uh, free agent acquisitions, including Demario Davis. You look at Jared Cook last year, you look at the free agent acquisitions that they made this year with uh, Emmanuel Sanders and, you know, Malcolm Jenkins getting Malcolm Jenkins back to New Orleans. So he's played a pivotal role in leading the charge for a lot of those, a lot of that personnel and a lot of those building blocks, which, you know, the saints have built very well through free agency with the exception of, you know, Jairus Bird and a couple of others. But for the most part, they built very strongly throughout free agency and Terry Fontenot has been a big part of that. So I love seeing him get this, uh, get this promotion and get this recognition and a little bit more trust from the organization as he now enters what probably turns a little bit more outside of a recommendation role and into a more decision-making role. Yeah. And like you said, the saints in free agency are one of those franchises as breeze got more expensive as certain other players got more expensive, they had to find those values mm-hmm. and they found a lot of value players. Like you said, Demario Davis is a, was a huge value pickup in getting him for the dollars they paid for him and the value he's returned on field. No, that's a that that Insane. that's a steal now. That, right. I mean, it's an incredible steal, and yep. you could and, and Emmanuel Sanders could end up being the offseason steal on offense in this league. Ty Montgomery could yes. be that same yeah. type of thing, and and I mean, people already you know you're looking at how these guys could be used and salivating because the Saints have done such a great job of not trying to swing for the fences in free agency anymore and identifying needs, plugging those, and just saying. We need a competent person who we can trust in that role. Yeah, look at the addition of Malcolm Brown. 
and how fantastic that ended up being for the team. Uh, a signing that was absolutely one of those value signings. They could have gone out and you know waited to go after a, a you know a big ticket guy, or they could have left onto a big ticket guy right at the beginning in the defensive interior. But they bring in a guy like Malcolm Brown, and he was hugely helpful for the Saints at that nose tackle position, as well as operating out of three tech every now and then as well. So he's been somebody that Terry Fontenot, somebody that's been there, and not only not only evaluating the talent that's available. You know, he was also a part of, in terms of free agency in the offseason. And he was also a part of bringing Janoris Jenkins in off the waiver wire because that's also his job is monitoring who's on the waiver wire. He also brought in DJ Swearinger late in the season that ended up being uh, beneficial and another leadership type uh, veteran for the secondary that is otherwise very or was otherwise very young. And then you also look at the signing and then subsequent release of Larry Warford. Signing Larry Warford the year that they brought him in before, you know, three years ago he was fantastic piece for the saints. And then he's dropped off ever since. And he was a part of the evaluation process in terms of how is this guy holding up versus the value that we're giving him. And then they make a decision to move on from him, which could prove this season to be beneficial, depending upon how the young talent that Jeff Ireland brings in or has brought in ends up progressing and, and, uh, and developing. And that's how the relationship between those two work in concert. One of those players that we can talk about that he brought in, um, Nigel uh, Bradham from mm-hmm. Philadelphia, linebacker, uh, very solid player, not a superstar, but mm-hmm. a guy who excels in coverage and is a pretty solid tackler. I mean, outside of one season where he gets hurt last season, where he mm-hmm. hurts his ankle, which wasn't a severe injury, but a nagging mm-hmm. one, mm-hmm. he's been dependable, which is what you want out of these linebackers. He's shown range and he can, show, and he can cover. Yeah, it feels an awful lot like, I'm not saying it's going to turn out this way, but it feels an awful lot like the DeMario Davis signing, if I'm being completely honest. This linebacker that, you know, uh, wasn't somebody that was on, you know, the huge lists, you know, the big lists that pop out and things like that, but that the Saints ended up adding as somebody that they felt fit their system that's versatile. They could play several different linebacker positions. He played Sam when he was at Buffalo. He played Sam the first year at Philadelphia, switched over to Mike once Jordan Hicks got hurt, played a little bit of Mike and Will during his time with uh, Philadelphia. Last year he had the ankle injury but was able to come back and played just fine off of that. You know, he's not a big-time run stopper. He, you know, has some issues in the run game, but he doesn't play any worse. He's not any worse graded in the run game than Alex Anzalone or A.J. Klein from the last couple of years. So you're looking essentially at somebody that replaces either one of those guys. If Kiko Alonso isn't ready to go at the beginning of the season, you have a guy in, in, in Bradham that's either a potential starter for your team or he's fantastic, valuable depth, you know, as, as a veteran guy in a room that otherwise is very young. When you look at Zach Bond coming in in his first year, Cade Nellis in his second year, which you know ended or his his rookie year ended early with the ACL tear. You have Chase Hansen who's coming back who didn't even get into anything last year because he was on the NFI list off of the PUP. You have uh, Craig Robertson who is a veteran, but he's more of a special teams presence at this point in his career. And so you get somebody that is another veteran presence that can be effective in on defense. And then maybe you take advantage of some of this younger talent on special teams, some of this younger, faster, more athletic talent on special teams as a means of uh, continuing to hold down this, this often injured second level, which has been a little bit of a problem for the Saints uh, between Alex Anzalone and now Kiko Alonso as well. You haven't had the issues in stuffing the run um, as a team. Right. The, the approach has been very solid the last two seasons. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you, you would think that whatever deficiencies are there, 
coverage has been a much bigger issue for the Saints in getting from right. their linebackers and being able to play make. And this is a guy, at least he's shown some ability to play make. Not, an, not, not a ton of interception, but just not what you're getting from linebackers. But right. the ability to defend tight ends, to defend mm-hmm. receivers in the short game. And that's going to be, in this season, I think there's going to be so – it looks like there are going to be a lot of receivers for some reason opting out. Have you yeah. noticed that? It's a yeah, lot of receivers. Mm-hmm. So you have a I'm lot like, of receivers and a lot of the, the guys in the trenches, which the guys in the trenches we expected. Expect That's much a lot of receivers. Right. So, and, and, and now you see like Tredavious White, a corner opting right. out. So that was a surprise to me, but it's a lot of skill position. And, and so it seems like passing games, because you don't have this repetition this off season, you don't have this rhythm of getting to, th- you know, game situations again that familiarity is important for the offenses but that lack of it is an advantage for defenses that have been together yeah the other part where Nigel Radham has proven very strong and the defenses you know the Saints defense has improved uh, in defending over the years is passes out of the backfield to the running backs as well and you're going to see a lot of quarterbacks exactly what you're talking about in terms of those wide receivers that either are on unfamiliar territory with the quarterback or whatever it might be just in terms of unfamiliar territory coming in off of a truncated offseason they're going to rely on those safety outlets and so if you have somebody that you know can get a tackle for a loss on a flat route or can get a tackle for a loss by breaking through on a screen and reading it well which is something Nigel Bradham has shown he has the propensity to do you're going to take advantage of that. And you have three teams in this division that are mm-hmm. all going to utilize their backs in that way. Christian McCaffrey yep. is going to be out there trying to catch passes, of course. And yep. you're going to see Tom Brady throwing in that short area a lot. Mm-hmm. And then and you'd say the same um, for Matt Ryan. I mean, that's, yep. that's always been a part of Atlanta's passing game is going to the backs. So, mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's, it's a good situation, I think, there for the Saints. Um, we did get a question from uh, a listener, Alexander Sherrod. What new efforts has the organization uh, adopted to get the rookies up to speed without having the benefit of mini camps? Yeah, I think that the thing that is important to recognize is that even though they weren't able to meet in person, you've had all the Zoom calls, all the WebEx calls. It's not like the 2011 season, something we've talked about before. It's where 2011, the team wasn't allowed to talk to the players because it was a lockout. This is very different. They've been in contact. They've been talking. They've been doing all of that in terms of implementing and installing game plans with these rookies since, you know, since training camp essentially got shut down and they've been talking during these, uh, these team meetings. So while they haven't been in place and, and, and ready to go from the very beginning, they are, or excuse me, ready to go in person from the very beginning, they've still been maintaining that communication. The other thing that you saw them do was that the Saints didn't wait all the way until August 16th to make the 10-player 10, the 10 cut. The reason why that's important is because if they would have carried more than 80 players into strength and conditioning, then you would have seen a split squad. So the rookies in the first year players, or I'm sorry, rookie in the second year players would have been in their own group. And then beyond second year veterans would have been in a separate group this way with cutting those 10 players as they did, it allows all 80 of the players to be in the facility at the same time, which means Drew Brees is working with Cesar Ruiz right away. Um, you know, Drew Brees is working with, I guess Drew Brees would have been working with uh, Emmanuel Sanders no matter what, but Zach Bond is working with the other linebackers. He's in the room talking to Demario Davis, asking questions, talking to these guys. Um, Adam Troutman is working immediately with Drew Brees and with Jerry Cook. You know, all of that is, and I guess since I named the, I named three, I might as well, name, Tommy Stevens is in there doing something. We don't know yet. 
exactly why he's learning from Taysom Hill. Maybe I'm not sure, but he's doing something. Uh, but you have all of this. I know I'm with you. Uh, you have uh, the, the rookies are immediately getting access to these veterans, people that they have to get a rhythm with, have to get a chemistry with, have to have communication with. I think that that's something else that they've done. That's really important. It's not waited too long to get that started. They waited a little bit to get through testing and physicals, but once it was time to get everybody in the building, they made the right move to get everybody there at the same time. Well, it's interesting when you look at, three of those four because with, with Tommy, right. you know, he's going to be doing scout team stuff. He's not mm-hmm. going to, and, and they have to get to work on Jameis. So I think, yes. you know, it, that's with where Taysom and Jameis, <laughs> they're not wasting snaps with Tommy. Isn't it? Right. But for the other three, the thing is you can limit uh, Bond early and just say pass mm-hmm. rush, do that. Right. And because now with this additional signing, you've put more depth in your linebacking core. You can have situation more situational substitutions. So great. Yep. That that sh- shortens his learning curve slightly. Mm-hmm. Cesar Ruiz, again, we expect him as a as a four-year guy at Michigan, a guy who just knows his job. Um, one of the most intelligent rookies to come in in a long time. Working with Breeze. If Breeze can make the transition last year, we're again assuming that with Sean Payton in this group, the calls will be close enough that they can do this. They'll figure this out. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, you know, you go uh, with Troutman, we could be talking, there is again, a, another tight end on that opposite side with experience. And you can put him in, in those unique situations where you can use his athleticism and, mm-hmm. and take advantage of that. So I think that those rookies are actually in a very good position compared to other rookies on other teams, because the yes. saints do have such a good veteran base at all of those spots um, and then have the right people to help that transition happen. Yeah. The thing about it is that with the Saints rookies, maybe with the exception of Cesar Ruiz, there's no expectation for any of those players to step in and be a day one starter and carry the full load of responsibilities at their position. And even in the case of Cesar Ruiz, if he's not ready, that's also okay because you have Eric McCoy that can play at center. Hell, if Cesar Ruiz doesn't feel ready to even play at right guard, they have Nick Easton that they can plug in there as well. So they have the appropriate type of backup plans. I don't even want to call them backup plans, but they're the appropriate types of options, A1, A2, AB, you know, or A3, uh, uh, to be able to get prepared. I don't know what happened there. Uh, to be prepared for all of that. And so it, it's not going to force them into any positions where the rookies feel like they have to immediately jump in and be, you know, the the day one starter that turns the team around, like we saw in 2017 with almost an entire draft class. All right, let's shift to some fun stuff. Okay. Love it. Love it. So... ESPN did a poll of all the team's current potential Hall of Famers. Okay. So yes. Breeze got 100%. Mm-hmm. Um, the second level was Mike Thomas in the 90s already. Right. Uh, and then <laughs> you had the cut with the next set, which I was surprised by. Okay. Was the trio of – it was Cam, which I was not surprised by, Cam. Mm-hmm. Um, then it was – Alvin Kamara uh-huh. in that group with Cam. And then the third being Marshawn, which was not a surprise. Cam mm-hmm. and Marshawn were not a surprise. Alvin, because of running backs and because of touches, was a shock. And to have Ramchek and Armstead Here we go again. at below 20% <laughs> as a chance to make the, the Hall of Fame compared to Alvin, that, again, it just that, that surprised me. 
It's very surprising. It's very, very, very surprising. I mean, we should, you know, we've had this conversation a couple of times where, to where we were talking about, you know, the number of players on this roster that could potentially be in the Hall of Fame conversation someday. And I don't know if you remember, but when we talked about it, we were kind of like, man, we are naming a lot of Saints players. Yeah. Maybe, maybe we're overestimating a little bit. And then seven end up on this list. And so I, I was like, okay, well, great. I feel represented. This is fantastic. Um, but yeah, when you look at it, I think that that trio – at that sort of what was it third level right mm-hmm. which was the uh it's about was that 70 the, from 40 some plus to 70 in yeah. that area yeah yeah and for me you 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 just take you just take ryan ranchick and alvin Kamara for me and swap them or teron armstead and alvin Kamara for me and swap them and i think i'm i'm a little bit more in tune with that conversation but you're right i mean look at the running backs here in the hall of fame and look at alvin Kamara's style of play period and it's very different now don't get me wrong he's only you know one of He's what the only player to go in and do in his first three years and go over 2000 rushing yards, 2000 receiving yards, three pro bowls in his first year, all that other stuff, which I think we just need to stop. And we also, you know, pro bowls now. That's what I'm thinking. Yeah. We got to stop. We got to stop with the whole pro bowl popularity contest being a part of your hall of fame bit. There's no, (laughs) there's no reason that that should be down to fourth and fifth backs and stuff. Now it's same. Yeah. And like alternatives and everything. Cause you know, you, you know, other players aren't playing and things like that. Like there's so many variables to it. But, I mean, I, I was down with this list for the most part. The, my only question is just the positioning of Alvin Kamara and where he should actually be. And if you put him a little bit more in that, I think it's like 10% to 39% area uh, of, uh, of chance, which I think is like a we'll see or, or work to do or on the way or whatever. Mm-hmm. I can't remember what the little moniker they gave it was. But I feel like that's a little bit more appropriate just because his style of play at his position, the position period, and then also – um you know getting into there i was also interested to see like no and i get it i get it like kicker you've only got two kickers in the hall of fame right now adam venice is eventually going to be in there um will lutz maybe doesn't fit into that conversation but a guy like thomas morstead yeah i would put him in the 10 to 20 percent yeah i would get him in there long shot but deserves consideration yeah absolutely um i think he's if you wanted to talk about not getting pro bowls he would be a guy that hasn't gotten enough Mm-hmm. in my opinion yeah. but for Kamara the, the issue and I think people think sometimes that maybe we bash on him or something but the no. issue is you look at the running backs who are in the Hall of Fame mm-hmm. who you would consider multi-purpose backs a LaDainian Tomlinson like Priest Holmes right. is not in the Hall of Fame yet right Priest Holmes and you're putting Alvin Kamara's percentage and saying well he's been a Pro Bowl first three Priest Holmes had maybe the two greatest back-to-back seasons in NFL history. Right. And he's not in. Like, that's how hard it is to get in as a running back. And you're talking about now the guys who are going to be in that consideration with numbers like a Frank Gore, who I don't think right. is a Hall of Fame back, but you're going to look at his numbers and say he's the top five numbers of all, t- you know, yards of all time when he's right. done. And you're going to have guys, Adrian Peterson. So, you, I mean, you're going to have the last of those real bell cow backs. And Alvin, I don't think, will ever put up the numbers that when people look at it in the abstract five years removed from his career, mm-hmm. that you'll say, oh, yeah, he's in the class with a Marshall Falk, a LaDainian Thompson. Even Christian McCaffrey's going to get more numbers if he mm-hmm. stays healthy. And I mean, Roger Craig is not in the original 1,000-thousand right. thousand, thousand guy. Mm-hmm. And you would argue at this point, Roger Craig's got rings. Roger Craig had, you know, again, it was the featured back consistently right. for San Francisco in the middle of a dynasty that his case would be higher than that of an Alvin Kamara. It's just, yep. 
it, it, it surprises me. That's all I'll say to them. Yeah. I don't, I'm not going to bash yeah. the guy, but it's, I'm just saying it's surprising. Yeah, no, it's just, it, it's not one of those things where we think Alvin Kamara is bad or anything like that. Like, it's not about that. It's just, you look at his progression. Roger Craig was exactly my example as well. It's where you try to look at who can this guy be, you know, if you look at the top of his game or if you look at you know, the top of an enemy, Ricky Waters is a great example as well. Like, these guys aren't there. So what's the exception for, for Alvin Kamara, except for perhaps the time, but even still people are voting right now, right? The people that are intrigued by Alvin Kamara's level of, uh, level of play and style of play are voting and passing up those guys at this very moment. So what's going to be the difference when he becomes eligible? Yep. It's going to be very interesting to, uh, to see that. One of the cool stories, the XFL. Yes. So now we have the first um, Latin woman to mm-hmm. ever own a sports league. She is the CEO the Rock is a partner with his ex-wife in this, and they have been very solid in this. They've had a strong business relationship even since their divorce. Mm-hmm. I love this opportunity because if they do this right and you don't go say we're going to be a rival to the NFL, instead, in my opinion, if they focus on 18 to 25-year-olds, go get the elite players who right now are thinking about, I don't want to play. Man, I would take four years, five years of apprenticeship in a minor league like the XFL run by The Rock. Oh, yeah. <laughs> over then taking in has-beens and guys who are fringe guys and trying to just put football on TV. Yep. Because I think you yep. could absolutely recreate. If you got – look, major college football is 20 good teams anyway. Right. So if you wanted to have a league of, 20, of 15 to 20 teams or whatever, 16 teams, and you went after the elite young players in the country and guys who were still like, I'm in Canada, but I don't really want to be, or I'm in that middle area, practice squad guys who would rather not be on a practice squad. Yep. You know what I mean? Like 18 to 25 with a heavy development on quarterbacks in particular, man, they'd make a ton of money. I love it. Yeah. No, I think that the, I think that the model of the XFL is going to undergo. And I mean, I mean a lot when I say the model of the XFL, but uh, I mean that that model is going to undergo a very large upswing, first of all, but also just altogether changeover going into this new, we'll say leadership um, with these two, because I, 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 I was so excited about it. I was so excited because they, it, it, and it's also so classically WWE at the same time that the evil empire gets taken down by the hero. You know what I mean? And that the hero is the rock and the evil empire is Vince McMahon. Like it's so beautifully perfect in terms of heel and foil. It's fantastic. Just so yeah, this all worked out. Uh, but I'm really excited about it. I'm really excited. About, I'm very hopeful about what that new leadership is going to bring to that league. And I think it help to legitimize it a little bit as well. And, and I think you're absolutely right. Like leave alone the competition with the NFL. There's no, there's no winning in that. First, you don't of have all. the money. You'll never you have the money. And that entire league was bought for fifteen million dollars. Fifteen million dollars. The Saints are purchased back in 1985. The single team for seventy point two million dollars, and is currently valued at two point two eight million dollars. Billion. And this league got bought for fi- billion dollars. Excuse me. Uh, and this, uh, and this league in its entirety was purchased. By fifteen million dollars, like You'll you don't have the money, have money to compete. Yeah. <laughs> you don't have the money to compete. So carve out your niche. Carve out your niche. What makes you different? What are you doing? Are you developing players? Are you and those players could potentially move on to the NFL someday? And then all Absolutely. of a sudden you're a, you're a seed league, and then the NFL is invested in you in that way. Like 
gather and garner support from that league as opposed to trying to challenge it, which you just simply can't do in the first place. And think about it. You could create all the things that in this era now that these athletes are afraid of, Mm -hmm. that these college athletes, elite college athletes, and you say, we give you medical insurance. Yes. With us, you can, you, you, you'll have a place to stay. Is it like in the city that we're hosting you, whatever it is. Oh, you need the option for, for distance learning. Sure. We can do that. Yep. And we'll play in the summer and you play for three months, maybe even, I mean, 10 weeks, 10 weeks, you'd be Mm -hmm. satisfied with a 10 week season in the summer of elite young football players. Yep. And if it was, it was very open, you know, and, and, and just based on trying to, you know, mostly skill development and it's a passing game to get mm-hmm. quarterbacks developed, man, it, like you said, the NFL would be running because if they didn't have to pay to develop players, right. Because right. Right. then you're telling the coaches, okay, you want, we want you to win, but much like what the PCL is doing in mm-hmm. basketball mm-hmm. and much like what the G league is trying to do in basketball. Yep. Sure. We want you to win. But the number one goal is to develop more professional players. We need yep. to deepen our talent pool. And there are certain positions in the NFL that college football is not churning out. Look players at interior, ready to play in the league. Interior offensive line, I think, is a humongous one. You're talking about one of the most important spots on an offense, but also an offensive line, but an offense in terms of keeping your quarterback clean and healthy. And we have a severe lack of talent coming into the NFL along the interior offensive Safety, line. Safety, I think, is a position a big tr- one. that does not transition well from college to the pro. And edge rushers getting to the point where it's starting to drop off too because those edge rushers are getting moved to – those guys that are athletic enough to do that, they're getting moved to offensive positions because they're getting everybody ready for an offensive league. Yep. So they're moving to tight ends. They're moving to pass catchers, everything. It's, it's interesting to watch. I'm so glad that you brought that up because it's really interesting to watch just sort of like where are those talent gaps and how can we fill those in as this new – call it a supplemental league, call it a minor league, call it whatever you want, but its own lone standing league that can create an opportunity here to where you're not cycling. The thing about the XFL and its original model, it was prepared to have those teams look completely different the next year mm-hmm. and two years of turnover. If instead you're providing an alternative to students that can't afford to go to college, that aren't interested in going to college because they they don't want to, aren't interested in going to college because they have a family that they want to support and they want to start making money as quickly as possible with this incredible talent that they have that does have a shelf life on top of it that can be cut short at any given point. Then you put them in a professional league to where they have an opportunity to develop over four years. They get an opportunity to work with a single coach for four years, just like they would in, uh, in college football and develop and potentially work themselves into this next level, whether it be going to Canada and playing or whether it be in the NFL or other semi-pro leagues as well. So there's a lot of, uh, I think that there's a, a much better opportunity with this sort of what I'm hoping will be a completely new, newly revamped approach, ideally one that supports, you know, the social conversations and everything that's going on, much like the X, unlike what the XFL was trying to do in the beginning, which was stifle all of that, which will make it more appealing to that young elite college talent that even to this point, already is starting to say, you know what, I care so much about this and I know I have these offers from these top schools, but I'm going to go over to this HBCU to be a part of something that I really care about, right? We're already starting to see decisions like that. You put them in a pro league to where they can get away from the NCAA entirely and not have to survive under, you know, try to survive under that for three to to four years and instead move into a professional organization where they can get paid and support their family. 
you'll see that work really well. I mean, like you said, if the average NFL career is three years mm-hmm. and you go to college for four years and you don't get paid, but in this circumstance, you go to the XFL at 18 and you're getting paid to work. And if it's a hundred grand a year, 150 grand a year on top of whatever other benefits, your health insurance, all those things. Right. If I'm paying you that and you're getting that and, and you're on getting an education, all those things, even if I only got that for four years, that money, if I've been taught the other things on the side, I'm teaching you how not only to play as a professional, but to live as a professional. Right. You can I'm offer that through this league as well. How to choose an That's agent, how to mm-hmm. manage your money, all these things. And if I walk out of that and I'm a kid at 19 and I can live off of 50 grand, 40, 40 grand, and I can pop, put the rest of that to my family or to whatever I plan to do after I stop playing ball. How is that not a better choice than giving it up for state you and getting nothing? Right. And choosing a degree that you won't use after, you know, that likely you're not going to use after you're done playing football. And you think about it, you know then you mean? get licensing money. You right. know what I mean? Then you get, you're part of a union. So you're getting protection. You're getting revenue on your own because now mm-hmm. you can go out and sell your face. Right. But you don't have to worry about anything. You have, you have a professional name on your back too, which makes you even more valuable. Yep. And I think that there are enough cities because again, the thing about the XFL, it doesn't, you don't need 75,000 fans to support football anymore. Right. You don't. If your player costs are low and your stadium size is small enough, 35,000 under and under, and you get a good, de- a decent TV deal in the summer, mm-hmm. that cost is covered. Yep. And this, uh, this investing company that, that they're working with red capital, I think yes. it is they're part or they're involved in some way or another with the yes network that rolls the Yankees in New York. And so, you know, whatever that partnership could end up being, as well as other TV deals, we saw, I mean, the XFL in its most recent version had great TV deals. They were on, you know, they were on the local channels, but they were also on ESPN. They had Diana Rossini and Cam Jordan was out there a couple of times doing, you know, sideline reporting and everything like that. Like there, there's a proven want and desire for that league. And now you have an owner or a pair of owners and a CEO that's going to be a lot more transparent than Vince McMahon was. That's not going to get you know bogged down by the hubris of everything. And that is going to uh, ideally, and I think most assuredly, based on what we've seen from Vince McMahon over many different examples, not just this most recent iteration of the XFL, make better decisions, period. And I think that that's going to put them in a much better position. I'm really excited to see what, this, what comes of this. I'm very, you very You don't have to experiment it. with rules. That's not the thing you have to do. That's Mm -hmm. not what brings fans to the table is experimenting with rules. What they want to see in the summer is just to see the football. And if it's competitive and if it's – because now these kids are famous. And I think that 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 whole field has been evened out by kids having these videos at 15, 16, Mm -hmm. 17 years. The Zion Williamson thing can happen in football just like it did in basketball. We know who the – look, if if Eric Dickerson in Texas in 1980, you know, 79 – could be the most famous guy in the country, basically. Right. You know what I mean? Right. Today that can still work for a minor league in the summer. You don't have yep. to have these the legend of this and all that. You don't need it. You don't need a Heisman Trophy. You don't need any of those things. None of those things will, will assure you success as a pro. And quite frankly, coaches in college have no incentive to make you a great pro. Right. Their job is they to win just... games there. Right. That's all it is. That's so all you're not going to see a triple option in the NFL. 
You know what I mean? So as a, as an offensive lineman, that's not helping you. Mm -mm. And, and, and running, you know, running quarterback systems and all this other stuff that like, you're like, that's not prepping you for anything. Throwing 75 passes in a game that that's no, that's, that's not it. Right. There's no reason that, and, and this is something I've been pondering about a lot because of all the conversations around Adam Troutman, but there's no reason that colleges can't prov- that, that colleges can't provide the appropriate training for a tight end to make that transition less steep. To this day, in 2020, it is still an incredibly steep transition for tight ends to go from college to the pros, and there's no excuse for that. There's no excuse for that other than the fact that colleges want that position to do what it does in college and have no invested interest in teaching them what they're going to do in the pros. They don't. And most, most coaches are not Nick Saban with NFL experience. Most, most coaches right. are just doing, if they have an advantage in talent, they tell that talent to do what it does best. Yep. They, they, they don't really spend a lot of time on the coaching up part because that's not what they're there for. That's right. just not what they're there for. Um, hard knocks. Chooses the Rams and the Chargers. So we're talking about bad entertainment. <laughs> you take two of the most boring franchises possible. Name personalities that you would be interested in watching on either one of those teams. Because the, so the Rams funny. got rid of everybody. Right, right. There's literally, there's really nobody on the Rams that I'm interested in watching at all. Maybe Jalen Ramsey causing trouble, right? But it's for all the wrong reasons that I want to watch him over on the Chargers side. You know, look, Tyrod Taylor is hysterical. He's an incredibly funny dude. There is going to be a little bit of that quarterback, you know, conversation. And I'm sure they're going to play it up as much as possible. Cause it's really the only position drama you're going to find between these two teams is does Justin Herbert come in and immediately become the quarterback or does it take four weeks? You know what I mean? Like that's going to be, <laughs> <laughs> that's going to be the, the big question at the quarterback position. And there's a couple of guys that were on the defensive side for the chargers that I'll be interested in seeing, um, you know, uh, uh, what's the Derwin James, uh, the safety. He's great. You know I mean? There's so the, the secondary for the chargers. I think there's enough personality there to find interest, but man, like outside of that, and maybe some awkward moments with Joey Bosa. Uh, I don't know what <laughs> I don't know what else is really the draw. Sean McVay is not guys. really a, a man. Guy. Did that act get played out quick? Yes, bro. Yes. He was supposed to be the next Steve Kerr. You know what I'm saying? And like have all that. And that act played out so fast. And and then it's just you're at the point with at the quarterback position. They it feels like they've made a huge mistake. Right. It just, just feels like they've made a huge mistake. Right. And he has no like Jared Cook, Jared, so excuse me, Jared Goff has no personality. None. At all. He's just a wet blanket. And, and you so just got gonna... these two set insanely talented wideouts. Right. And he's right. so inaccurate. <laughs> he's so inaccurate. Jared Goff, I don't <laughs> understand how he's that inaccurate. I don't get I don't, it. I don't get it, man. Like him, him and Mitch Trubisky will forever be confusing to me. Everything around Mitch Trubisky is entirely too confusing. Yeah, Mitch Trubisky's whole career is the whole thing. (laughs) It's like what? That's like that could. I'm glad we don't live in Chicago, right? Because I would hate to have to to always be thinking about the legacy of Chicago quarterbacks, bro. And like since Jim McMahon left, right? Not a single quarterback they've drafted has been worth anything. No, Jay Cutler was almost there, man. He was almost there. And then he just stopped caring. 
But he, yeah, he's just I, I not mean, caring. He started smoking on the sideline and stopped caring. You know what I'm saying? I mean, even at his best, though, Jay I know Cutler he still was, wasn't. And he yeah. wasn't theirs. He started in Denver. Right. You know what I mean? So it's like they have not been able to grow That's true. a quarterback. That's true. Yep. My bad. They've not, I mean, they've, and look who all the ones they've been through, man. Mm-hmm. Cordell Stewart. You know what I mean? Like they've tried everything, man. Yeah. It's bad. Yeah. It's bad. It's been bad. That was one of the things that I talked about. I talked about that recently on Locked on Saints because, you know, there's a whole conversation going on about like, oh, the Saints are in trouble because they can't find a boundary, a depth, boundary cornerback depth. They can't find another guy behind Marshall and Lattimore and Janoris Jenkins. And I'm like, all right, let's have a real conversation about this. Look at the quarterback situation in Chicago. Somehow the Saints are in more trouble than what's going on in Chicago. Look in Jacksonville, everything that they've been through. Is Gardner Minshew really the guy? You know what I mean? Look at, you know, look at uh, the, the Chargers and the Rams. The Rams invested so much money in a broken quarterback. You know, like there's so much, there's so much worse that can be going on than not having depth at the boundary position or being thin at depth in the boundary when position. When two of those guys could have Pro Bowl potential. Right. And, right. Uh, and one of them could be an all-pro. Uh-huh. So I'm sorry I'm not that concerned about that in the grand scheme of things no. when you look at the entirety of this roster right everything that through, you're doing now is polishing some some rough edges that's it and go through the rest of the nfl i did this not the other day go through the rest of the nfl and tell me how many known commodities are at the fourth cornerback spot like unless somebody just drafted a rookie right unless christian fulton just joined your team there's nobody else you know what i'm saying that's not a Team's thing struggling to have two Right, <laughs> right. Teams are really like, have a damn quarterback. I watched you know the saying? Lions my entire life. I've never seen them with two cornerbacks. I've never <laughs> seen them with two. They've only had one. At one time it was Dre Bly, you know, and then right. Dre left, and then it was nope. never more than one. So right. there are teams that the Saints could – you can't at the same time – this is what bothers me about Saints fans at times. You can't out the out one side of your mouth say this is the most talented Saints team in history. And there are plenty of people who are saying it. Yep. And then on the other side say – they're an inch away from going one in 15. Yeah. That's the thing is like, if you're, if the depth at your boundary corner is the difference between 13 and three and one in 15, you need to look elsewhere. <laughs> There's other much larger issues uh, on that squad. Uh, but sorry to go back to the, to go back to LA and, and that, I think the, you know, the only reason I think that they chose to do this is because I think they've been waiting to choose LA for a while now. And obviously, the facility is going to be open now. Right. They have the new facility, SoFi Stadium's there. And then they get to maximize. I think they've thought about this for a while and that they could have done the Chargers for a while now. They could have done the Chargers since they moved out here, but they haven't done that because I think that they've always wanted to be able to do Rams and Chargers in the same city, in the same facility, knowing that that was going to be the case. And they were just waiting for that moment that the Rams didn't you know, make the playoffs and they were eligible for, for hard knocks. And then it, I think it came maybe quicker than they expected, perhaps. Uh, but I, I knew that they were going to, but it makes sense that they would jump on this as quickly as possible. But I kind of wish that they would have also taken into consideration just the entertainment value from the football perspective. How do you bubble this? <sighs> How do you keep HBO and their crew from, and what if you get COVID camp? You know what I'm saying? Like there's an, yeah. what if there's an outbreak in that facility during the filming of this? How embarrassing is that for the NFL? I think it's embarrassing, especially if the outbreak is started by somebody from that production company. I think that that's where the, the sort of largest issue, you know, if some cameraman brings it in or something like that, you know, you're going to see them only probably have, you know, a very bare bones, very, very bare bones uh, crew in terms of filming crew. I don't think you're going to see multiple cameras. I think you'll see maybe 
two or three at most, but I don't, and maybe even just one at a time, you'll see two separate uh, film companies or two separate film production teams, one with the chargers, one with the Rams, I would imagine Same people every day. Exactly. Like, and mm-hmm. probably bubbled with them if they end up doing some kind of a bubble or creating their own film companies have been really, you know, I'm a part of a lot of the SAG after conversations that go on with the idea of how do we get Hollywood back up and then get everything started in terms of like the entertainment value, just from shooting a commercial. Yes. Right. And so there's been months and months and months of conversation that I can promise you has gone much better than the conversations that we've seen amongst the NFL and NFLPA. Uh, but, you know, with my insight into those conversations, I think the production companies will bubble and they'll do their own thing and, and, and make sure that it's always that same crew for each individual team, not do much cross-pollination, if you will, between what that is. Uh, but I think that the thing that has got to be sort of the most concerning is if one of those teams for whatever reason, one of those production teams for whatever reason, ends up bringing this virus and starting an outbreak within the organization. And that could spell pretty bad news for hard knocks, not just now, but even into the future as well. So you don't want to see that happen unless you're tired of hard knocks, which I kind of am, but I also don't wish that upon anybody. No, 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 no. But yeah, I, it hasn't been as interesting in the last couple of seasons. I think the best is when you have really bad teams. Um, mm-hmm. Those are the best years. I don't like championship teams on hard knocks. Mm. I don't like, and teams with new coaches aren't necessarily fun. It's more like, right. I like the, I like when you're on a coach who's on the verge of getting fired and this is his camp. Cause remember the one with Cincinnati yes, and, Mar- with Cincinnati, and, and, yeah. and you're watching it. You're like, Oh, Hugh, Hugh is gone because like any day <laughs> like, when your assistant coaches are openly challenging you in right. team meetings, it's just like, Nope, that's not going to work. And you're like, you didn't fire him. Right, like you, you, you could tell Hugh Jackson was done, and it was just, yeah. Like, but that those were the ones that are interesting. I don't want to see happy teams and just be like, hey man, we're back for another year, man. All right, let's get let's get right. Yeah, yeah. Hey, look, look, look. <laughs> no, bad teams are the best. Yes, I want to see that, especially with rookies who hold out. Those yes. are all. all. Yeah. Give me to give me the trouble. Like if you're gonna go through this, give me the trouble. Give me the actual reality of this reality television show. Like yes. keep, give me the, every time yes. you've given me the give Jets. Give me Adam they, Gase. <laughs> the Jets and the Dolphins never cease to give you what you want in, right. in hard knocks. Imagine hard knocks having been present during the Jets this offseason with Jamal Adams, Le'Veon Bell, uh Adam Gase, all this stuff that's going on with them. CJ Mosley opting out, like that's the team that I want to see. Give me that or give me that, that uh, Baltimore Ravens. Or, New yeah, England New England and a Mets. Oh, gosh. Oh. Cam? A, mm-hmm. Camp oh. with Cam? Oh. Cam, camp, camp, camp all day. All, all day. day. <laughs> all day. Like, um, I, will say, I will say that there's one example of like a team that got along that was great on Hard Knocks, and that was that Baltimore Ravens team. When they did the Baltimore Ravens, that one was a pretty good season. That was, good that was early. But, but that, that was, was a lot of crazy too. dudes on that team. That was, yeah, just tons of massive personalities all over the place. How many Hall of Famers like, are you talking oh, about in that group? Oh, you know, man. And big, big voices. Just like right. Syracuse. Ray Lewis, Shannon Sharp, Shannon Sharp Syracuse. Sharp, Ray yeah. Lewis. Oh. I mean, just up and down. It's just guys who can run their mouths. Chris McAllister. Like, oh, this, Terrell Suggs. Yeah, Terrell Suggs like, in and out of there. Oh, my goodness. Rod Woodson was still on that team. Yeah, he was still there. And that, was that the year that Prime was there too? Was that the year that Prime showed up, or I, was it the year after? Prime? Oh, I can't remember. That was his, his number thirty-seven year. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I always think about the. I don't think Prime was there. I can't remember. I don't think he was there for that one. No. Yeah, but still, fantastic group, man. But that's you know that stuff. The Cowboys legend. year was awesome. Yeah, that one was really good too. 
That one was really good. That it's really was... just been the recent years. It's really just been the recent years yeah. and everything. Yeah. And, and you know what else? Jackson. And you know what else? The training camp changes in terms of the number of like padded practices, things like that. That had a lot to do with it too. It started to drop off. That kind of correlates a little bit because I think that, you know, just when you're in practice and you're, you know, you're walloping each other a little bit more, I think it just makes for more, it makes for more adrenaline. It makes for more moments and things like that. So I think that you saw a lot more of that when there was more of those full contact padded practices, you know what I mean? People going at each other. Cut day is going to be weird. Cut days gonna be really weird because we're gonna. Because you have no preseason games. Based on what you know, and from from like our perspective, from yeah, the outside watching. looking in. Yeah, yeah. It's gonna be so weird to see how they do this because the evaluation process is unprecedented now. Mm-hmm. No preseason games, so guys are just gonna be like coming in one day and like, "Hey, you sucked at practice. Give me a playbook, <laughs> and it's over, dude." <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Everything's going to like all those decisions are going to be made about what you do or don't do during training camp. Who gets sick? Like Mm -hmm. you're, you could literally keep your job because somebody gets COVID and you're like, I'm in, I was going to get cut. I know it. (laughs) But but I'm in for at least 10 to 14 days. Here we go. These two weeks I'm getting a check. (laughs) That's right. I'm in on this. That's two game checks right there. And that's going to be the weirdest thing because guys are – that's really going – I imagine it's it's, it's going to happen. Yeah. Like something like that is going to happen. Oh, yeah. And you're going to get your job because somebody else had to go home or something. It's just – this is going to be surreal, and I don't know if the NFL knows what they're getting into. This might have been a year I wouldn't have done it. Yeah. Yeah, just just like not done done hard knocks at all. Yeah. Yeah, that feels like the way the NBA has handled all access – you know, to these things, it's been very clipped. Yeah. Very short. Hey, let's show you how the laundry attendant does his day. Stuff that ain't going to get you in trouble. Right. And real the NFL simple, is real different. Easy. It's a different world. Yeah, man. And Shout out JD, by the way. Ooh. That was excellent. That, that was, was so awesome. good. That was so good. <laughs> but, uh, you know, the other, thing, the other thing that I'll throw in there, too, is just that, like, it, it's confusing to me from the NFL. Maybe, maybe it's just a revenue thing, which seems likely. But that they would do this at the same time to where they're saying, hey, you can't swap jerseys after a game. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I understand. I understand not swapping jerseys after a game. Limit every bit of exposure really, every player has after to any you've player. Been all, you might as well have swapped jerseys for, for 60 minutes. I know. I get it. I 100% get it. But like, <laughs> like, that's, that's, what's re- that's what's required within the game, right? And then after that, limit everything inside or outside so what, of those 60 I minutes. Guarantee, somebody's bringing tongs in a plastic bag, and they're like, I'll just give me your it. jersey. Yeah. Drop it in there, zip it up. They're like throwing it. <laughs> Get to the laundry guy. I'm like, you take care of that. Right. Put that Hazmat. put that put that self-cleaning detergent stuff on it with the Did you think about it? Drew Brees this on. year, if this is final season, how many people are asking Drew for his jersey at the end of the Oh my the goodness. Oh my every quarterback he plays against. Every quarterback he plays against is coming up to him. Tom Brady at the end of week one. Hey, let me get that jersey real quick. Like <laughs> every time. Every time for sure. Game worn. Like, man. All come right. on, that week, that week sixteen jersey. I mean, that week seventeen jersey. Come on, somebody. Uh, right, right, right. The week seventeen jersey. <laughs> man, I love doing these. Um, yeah, another man. great week, I think. Um, and I can't wait till next week. Tell folks yeah, again how they can follow you, and um, what you got popping. Yeah, brother. So y'all can follow me on Twitter as always at uh, Ross Jackson Nola officially, officially N A B J. Shout out. So very excited about that. Uh, thank you for hooking me up through there. 
and get me started. Um, and thank you as always for having me here and having me back. Uh, if y'all want to keep up, there's uh, Locked on Saints every Monday through Friday, 20 to 25, maybe sometimes 30 minutes, depending on if I'm feeling a little loose. Uh, everything you need to know about your Saints every single day. Uh, I got the write-ups over at Canal Street Chronicles. And, uh, of course, here every week on Wednesday with, uh, with my boy, with my boy David. That's so, right. We're here, and- the Dome Patrol. And we're going to keep doing it. That's right. I got to get mine back in, in shape. I let it go for a couple of days. You got until Wednesday. Don't even worry about it. That's right. It's I got not, another It's week not on the brand until Wednesday. <laughs> <laughs> so for Ross Jackson and myself, David Grubb, you can follow me, of course, again, at DM Grubb uh, on Twitter and on Instagram. And check out the website, HITPwithDG.com. There will be new merch coming at the end of this week. New merch. Ross is rocking it. New merch coming this week. Um, so thank you for listening rate it subscribe and we'll talk to you tomorrow this is david grove hard to paint we out thank you sir oh, yeah,